difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with Genevieve Kosky, Keith Phipps. Uh, Tasha Robinson is currently at Fantastic Fest, having a fantastic time watching fantastic cinema, but her fantastic self will return a few episodes from now. Here on The Next Picture Show, we believe that no film exists in a vacuum and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every week we get together to talk over a classic film and consider how it relates to a current movie. This week, we're storming the headquarters of a major corporation on behalf of decent, hardworking men and women. Genevieve, how's the muckraking going so far? Uh, Mixed bag, Scott. We're still getting stonewalled by the CEO, but we have succeeded in making several PR guys and security guards uncomfortable. I'm starting to worry that we'll never interview the CEO. In fact, I'm concerned that this whole charade is just a bad faith campaign to make the leader of one of the world's biggest corporations look like an inaccessible elite. Impossible. This is shoe leather journalism, or at least a comfortable running shoe journalism. Who's our intrepid progressive warrior this week? That would be Michael Moore, a journalist turned documentarian turned liberal gadfly from the blue collar city of Flint, Michigan. And with Moore's new provocation, Fahrenheit 11.9, in theaters, we thought we'd look back at his influential 1989 debut, Roger and Me. Roger and Me is a personal documentary about the declining fortunes of Moore's hometown, which was once the thriving hub of General Motors, but is suffering the economic impact of plant closings and layoffs, despite record profits for GM. Putting himself in front of the camera, Moore makes several fruitless attempts to confront GM CEO Roger Smith, but he also takes time to interview laid-off workers, GM functionaries, and local celebrities, as well as a sheriff's deputy delivering eviction notices and a woman selling rabbits as pets or meat. His sardonic approach to the material, on top of his man of the people bona fides, turned Roger and me into a sensation and resulted in attention-getting follow-ups like Bowling for Columbine, Sicko, and Fahrenheit 9-11. His semi-sequel to that last film, Fahrenheit 11-9, assesses life in the Trump era. On this week's show, we'll look back on Roger and me and consider the impact of Michael Moore on the culture and the documentary form. Then next week, we'll bring in Fahrenheit 11-9 and see how relevant Moore remains nearly 30 years later. We'll doff our baseball caps, slip on our sensible footwear, and rake some muck after the break. Hi, I'm Michael Moore. In my hometown of Flint, Michigan, General Motors closed the factories and put 30,000 people out of work. To raise their spirits, I made this movie. And went off to find GM Chairman Roger Smith to get some answers. Boy, was he hard to get to. We're going to have to ask you to leave the club. Do you want me to call Roger Smith? That's all flimless. Call General Motors. I really don't know. I don't think we've met. Do you have an appointment? Mr. Smith is not in. I don't understand. Would you mind leaving? So while looking for Roger, I got to know some of the people in my hometown a bit better. Like Deputy Fred. I treat a person the way I would like to be treated. Sheriff's Department. And I met a neighbor or two. I was color analyzed by someone in the IMS line who are the people who taught me to do colors. And I've discovered that I am another season. Talked to a PR guy at GM. Because a guy is an automobile executive does not make him inhuman. I've talked to enough of them, I know what their concerns are. I met some celebrities. I was born here in Flint, but I don't know anything about it. 
and kept trying to find Roger. As sequels to Jurassic World, The Incredibles, and Mission Impossible were raking in the dough at multiplexes over the summer, a quieter story was developing in the art house, where three documentaries, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg doc RBG, the Mr. Rogers doc Won't You Be My Neighbor, and Three Identical Strangers, an incredible yarn about triplets separated at birth, were dominating their fictional counterparts. While it's unusual for documentaries to enjoy that level of success, especially at a time when docs are so heavily supplying streaming services, it's by no means unheard of. Public perception of nonfiction films has shifted dramatically over the years. Where once documentaries were thought to be the stodgy province of public television, they are now a source of popular entertainment, a compelling window into people's lives and into the issues we care about. Broadly speaking, we have Roger and me to thank for that. There had been plenty of accomplished and talked about documentaries before Roger and me, but its impact on the culture was monumental. I was a senior in high school at the time the film came out, living in the Atlanta suburb of Marietta, and it may have been the first time I ever drove downtown to see a documentary in theaters. There was a fierce debate over the film's merits. While reviews were generally kind, Pauline Kael of The New Yorker savagely attacked the film's casual manipulation of the facts, referred to Michael Moore as, quote, a big shambling joker, and decried the film as, quote-unquote, gonzo demagoguery. Roger Ebert, on the other hand, was one of Roger and Me's biggest champions, and granted it much more liberty as a Swiftian satire. He wrote the film was, quote, not another one of those grim documentaries about hard times in the Rust Belt. It's more of a Bronx cheer aimed at GM, unquote. 29 years later, Roger and Me has rendered some of the more persnickety arguments against it kind of quaint. As filmgoers, we've become much more acutely aware of how the documentary Sausage gets made, and as such, we're more aware of how we're being manipulated, and perhaps a little more forgiving of it, too. At the same time, we've become much more familiar with Michael Moore the filmmaker and Michael Moore the public figure, and can notice certain patterns emerging. The faux populist pose of a crusader in blue jeans and a ball cap, the half-sarcastic, half-sentimental airing of liberal grievances, the tilting against corporate and government windmills. It's still possible to be compelled by the arguments he's making, but it's no longer possible to be surprised by them. And yet, Roger Mead does retain much of its original power. Even if he overplays his Midwestern man-of-the-people shtick, Moore is from Flint, Michigan, and knows from the ground level how the city has changed as the auto industry has abandoned it. When he plays the Beach Boys' Wouldn't It Be Nice over a montage of boarded-up houses and businesses, we're hit with a rush of still-resonant images of the urban decay that has gripped the industrial cities of the Rust Belt and hasn't let go. He may be delivering broadsides to the wealthy elite at polo clubs and Great Gatsby parties, but he also notes the toxic mentality of those who believe the poor are to blame for their own poverty and should be out there finding jobs where none exist. He visits a Taco Bell where assembly line workers couldn't handle a faster pace and a much lower pay. He visits a prison where former GM employees are jailing some of their less fortunate colleagues down the line. And for as much flack as Moore got for making fun of the Petzer Meat woman, she's just out there trying to make Laurent like everyone else. The questions raised by Roger and me have followed Moore his entire career. Is he intellectually dishonest? Is he preaching to the choir? Is he punching down at his subjects? Is his brand a first-person muckraking effective or a form of narcissism? We'll address those questions and more with our podcast pairing, but the fact is, Roger and me shined a light on a neglected city between the coasts and got people thinking about what really happens when factories shut down, businesses close, and families scramble to make rent and keep their heads above the poverty line. It was Michael Moore's mission as an activist, then and now, to blast his message through the biggest megaphone. And on that front, Roger and me was an unprecedented success. So yeah, if things go down, they close up some plants here. This town going to be 
Growth, please. I continued my search for Roger. I scoured the neighborhoods of Gross Point, Gross Point Woods, Gross Point Farms, Gross Point Park, Gross Point Shores, and Bloomfield Hills. I tried in vain to locate his house, but the name Smith was a common one among these people. Um, so, you know, the usual opening question, what's your history, Genevieve and Keith, with Roger and me? You know, what was your feeling about it when you first encountered it? And how do you feel about it now? I've seen this movie a couple times before, but this was the first time I didn't encounter it in an educational context. <laughs> I grew up in southeastern Michigan, about an, an hour from Flint in a community that where most people worked for the auto companies. So like Roger and me was a, a very big movie <laughs> where, where I was from. And I watched it for the first time in a high school civics class. And then I watched it a few years later in college in a journalism class. So in both cases, I think I was processing it through the lens of civics or journalism, you know, the, the context in which it was being presented to me. So this was the first time I feel like I really sort of processed it as a movie and as a pop documentary, which is a form I've become familiar with since that time and could kind of see and appreciate what Moore was doing a, a little more in terms of how that he constructed the story that he's telling here and the the liberties he took and how those liberties make the film effective. So, I mean, I, I like this movie a lot. It has a lot of resonance for me. Uh, you know, I have family that worked for GM, I have family that worked for Ford, like, you know, it, the story of Roger and me is to a certain extent, like a part of my personal history. So I have a definitely have a connection to this film. Keith? Yeah, I saw this at the time when it came out on video. I don't think I, I didn't see it in the theater. And, and I really liked it then. And I like it a lot now as well. And, and, and it, I think it holds up really well. It's extremely well put together and entertaining film as hard as it is to say that about this material because it is grim material and and you know my, my also a shout out to gm families my i, I my dad worked for gm and, mm. and uh was retired by the time this film came out but but certainly you know i think he dodged some of uh what was coming i mean the the building uh he worked in is gone i, I drive mm. i drive past it when i'm home now and it's like oh there's where it was there's you know i remember <laughs> same, same with my grandpa former gm employee <laughs> yeah exactly and it's, and it's so odd because it was is a big part of i'm from from a suburb of dayton ohio and and it was it was the um the brake factory delco moraine and that was a big part of the town and now it's wiped away like it never happened yeah. I thought you were like a Ford family. My mom works for Ford, uh, but my, my grandpa worked at a GM assembly plant for years and I was years. trying to get some, get, get some sort of a GM versus Ford rivalry <laughs> happening here. Assembly line or? Job shop. I think. Yeah, my dad yeah. was in charge of shipping, so he yeah. did he didn't work the line, but he was, you know, made sure things ran yeah. as they yeah. should. I'm honestly I'm honestly not sure. My grandpa was retired by the time I was old enough to be cognizant of this, you know. But to bring it back to Roger and me, like by the time I was aware of Roger and me, like this was probably the late nineties, you know, when I was in high school and at that point, like Flint's reputation in Michigan and obviously elsewhere, but like I was very aware of what Flint had become. Mm -hmm. So Roger and me like kind of helped contextualize what it was because I never had that context growing up. It was always just this city an hour to the north that had been sort of decimated by GM and I didn't really know the history of the union there and how big of a municipal center it was. So, And this was kind of an awakening for me as to how capitalism works, because mm. I always assumed that when people lost their jobs, it's because the company wasn't doing well. Mm. And I think more, you know, oversimplifies why things get shut down. But yet 
doesn't. I mean, this was a this was and remains a profitable company that that was letting its workers go. Yeah, and it's also I, the film itself doesn't really engage with it. Although there's sort of a, a passing line, I forget what exactly what it is, but someone makes a, a comment of, you know, I've I've been laid off a, a bunch of times, mm-hmm. you know, and like, and I, I believe my grandpa was like laid off a couple times by GM as well. Like at least in the auto factories, I don't know if this is true in other industries as well. It definitely seemed like there is sort of a culture of getting laid off and then brought back on, you know, like it's like kind of a, a circulating workforce. So you maybe jump from plant to plant throughout the course of your, your career, but that's not your production goes <laughs> up and down. They don't yeah. just, just, just doesn't stop. Right. Yeah. I first encountered this film when I was in high school and, uh, you know, went downtown to see it and I really responded strongly to it at the time. Uh, this was a time at which I was really reading a lot of criticism as well. And it was, was st- well aware of Cicely and Ebert's endorsement of it. And, uh, you know, and I was engaged with the politics of it. I think it was a pretty apolitical high schooler. Mm-hmm. And this was, this played probably some small part in uh, opening my eyes to some things. Um, but then I, I also recall going to college and doing a paper on Roger and me and then and taking more of the Kale slash Harlan Jacobson approach to Roger Mean starting to question its construction and, and its ordering of events. Seeing it now, I have way less of a problem with that aspect of it and more of a problem with some of the other things that Michael Moore tends to do in his documentaries. Um, you know, the hectoring of the low-level people on the ground floor for uh, an interview that's never in a million years going yeah. to happen. Uh, the staging of that is, is irritant. You know, I mean, some of the more glib or um, emotionally manipulative moments leave me a little bit cold i mean i still i think i like the film and i think it is by far his his best and and the reason for that is just the narrowness of focus i mean there was Mm -hmm. a certain point in his career not long after you know when he gets to bowling for columbine where he starts to make the essay film where where he can have this subject as a starting point in that case um guns and gun control and school shootings and then just kind of blow it out into a much broader assessment of the political landscape but this is michael moore who was not a national figure yet, in fact, was so committed to his area that he gets fired, as at least by his telling, from Mother Jones for doing a cover story about an un- unemployed worker in Flint, Michigan. Um, There's two reasons given. Like, uh, yeah. yeah, that and the that he wouldn't run the uh, article that critical of Sandinistas, right? Uh, okay. Yeah, like I've, I've read both of those justifications for him getting fired. I, I don't know which is true, and I would not be surprised if he has told both yeah, stories. he's That's the one true. doing the telling too. Yeah. I'm not sure uh, what kind of a working relationship one could have with Michael Moore, or even what kind of a journalist he is, based on what we see in the movie. He's but he's a propagandist more than a journalist, and that's not necessarily an insult. That's just his mm-hmm. style of of filmmaking. But the other thing that I really appreciate about it now is the look of it and how it's you know it's shot on film. It has a real like texture and grit. I don't know. It, it feels uh, a, a lot different than it is to watch you know a, a, another a documentary of his now or even any other kind. A documentary. Am I wrong about that? No, I don't think you're wrong. I, I think I, I think it lends a, a certain quality to it. You know, the, the graininess of it is is you know I enjoy that about it, and it was part of that sort of 
kind of period between 86 to 92 from, uh, you know, she's got to have it through, you know, the, you know, all those films that came out in 92 at Sundance that were, where it's like, grab a camera, let's redefine what movies are, you know? And, and I think that did this for documentaries in, in, in a, in a huge way. And, and the tools he was using were something similar to what, you know, what Spike Lee or Steven Soderbergh were using as well. What if you think about it, what a galvanizing moment for this thing to, hit the culture as it did. I mean, this was bought by Warner Brothers. Mm -hmm. I mean, the thought of a major studio buying a documentary for, I think, what, three million and then releasing it under its own banner. I mean, that's not, that doesn't even happen today. So, so it was such a sensation on the festival circuit. I think Telluride is where it, where it first um, was shown. Um, And that that would be a case where any major studio would have too many ties to, some sort of corporation somewhere to, to release something that was so directly attacking oh, one, one corporation. That, that's absolutely true. I mean, I guess there's not, not a, I guess there's enough degrees, uh, for, between, uh, Warner brothers and general motors to uh, <laughs> keep that from happening. But, um, you know, Roger and me, I mean, we, we've talked about it already, but you know, Roger and me hits all three of us in the Midwestern sweet spot. You're an hour away from Flynn, as you said. I mean, do you find it authentically Midwest? Do you recognize home in it? I mean, I, I don't recognize home in Flint. Like, I, I grew up in a much more affluent city where it, it was mostly more white-collar uh, auto, auto workers, you know? But I think in terms of sort of the cliche of Midwestern, and specifically of the Rust Belt, it definitely fits that mold and because flint is like such a paragon of that you know sort of decaying rust belt mold um but i think and this like kind of ties into what you were just saying about the the film itself having a a certain sort of like graininess or, or authenticity to it and like i think a lot of it just comes down to more himself and how he looks and how he presents himself on camera and there is like for as confrontational as he is, there is a baseline sort of Midwest, not quite politeness, but sort of he's unpretentious. Yeah, a, a lack of pretension, a lack of pretension, and a, sort of an, a facade of respect, you know, mm-hmm. of of politeness that comes out whenever is he is in direct conflict with a authority figure. Yeah, there's a sort of a, a straight talkingness to him as mm-hmm. well that I associate with the Midwest and and the you know places I grew up. Yeah. Well, he's got like two modes. He's because he's got the one mode when he's when he's like questioning uh, uh, underlings. He's got that I just fallen off the turnip yeah, truck yeah. thing where it's like, mm-hmm. what? I didn't. I'm just here to talk to Roger Moore. What do you? Actually, I, I'm Roger just, Moore. <laughs> I'm <laughs> just here to talk to uh, Roger Smith. And then, and then and then I think when he does talk to people whose situations he sympathizes with, he has a very easy conversational way about it, and he gets some pretty good. Material. I mean, you know, he is guilty. I think, generally speaking, of really shaping the material in an aggressive way. I mean, mm-hmm. that's always been his thing. But there are some moments of spontaneity achieved here um, that I think his his presence helps bring out. Uh, so, in that sense, I think he he's a natural on camera. He seems he certainly knows it. With regard to the midwestern thing, you know, when I was a kid, my cousins uh, lived in Montrose, Michigan, which is a small town. Uh, just outside of Flint, and, and I have such strong memories of of that town and its decay and its problems, and then also of visiting you know downtown Flint and finding it so conspicuously empty and mm. and kind of depressing. I mean, I don't think we ever did it went more than once, but it left a really strong impression on me. And I and I grew up outside of Toledo as well, which isn't 
isn't Flint, but wasn't immune to its own hardships with regard to blue-collar labor. But it was refreshing to me just to see home on screen to some degree. I mean, it's, it's not precisely home, as you say, but it is home. And, and um, you know, you think about so many aspects of the film not just the location, but that you did that you weren't seeing in movies of any kind. Docu- you know, maybe there's maybe some documentaries or, or uh, that that were quite small that maybe didn't reach anywhere near the attention that Roger and me did. But you know, just to know, just to get a picture of what life was like and what people were having to go through and what it means to live in a city where you kind of can't get out and you have no options and and mm-hmm. you're running out of money and maybe if you're lucky you get a job on a Taco Bell. <laughs> assembly line for dramatically less pay or you get a job you know locking the glamorous new Hyatt Regency that's (laughs) That's going to close in a few months yes with the escalators (laughs) that you can ride up and down yeah that was an effective uh, that was yeah like 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 to talk about the the Midwestern or the Michigan-ness of it all the the whole segment of the attempt to make a tourism capital like is just like so sadly funny if you are familiar with like where flint is situated in, in michigan and like the claim that it has like, like, like this convenient like location on, on the way to, to everywhere really like, does not. <laughs> really does like arguably nowhere in michigan is on the way to anywhere because you have to like go up into michigan you know unless you're going right. to canada obviously but like flint is only like a convenient location if you're going to like northeastern yeah, michigan, you, 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 you have know? to you you would on the way would have to be before Detroit. Yeah. And Detroit is pretty south in the state. Yeah. You know? Like Ann Arbor, maybe you could say. Yeah. That, yeah. that could be something. But oh my gosh. And, and Toledo had its own, something exactly like that. We Toledo had uh, something called Portside that they opened up. It's exactly <laughs> like what they opened in, uh, in, in Flint. It was the same situation where they spent a ton of money, had all these shops, big splashy opening, and, and just... You know they're all out of business within within a year. So I know a lot of the complaints about the film at the time had to do with chronology, and I forget exactly what they were. But I was so intrigued by Auto World, I had to research it. And this is where you know you get into like sort of the the mixed chronology of it, which is he's documenting layoffs that began in 1986 and plant closures began in 1986. Auto World. It's a six-month lifespan. I think it reopened later, but that's from 1984. And mm-hmm. he's treating it as like a thing that was a result of, of the closures. Yeah. The Hyatt Regency was built in 1981, you know? And, it, and it's like, you know, I, I'm not terribly bugged by that stuff because, you know, he's making an effective essay here. But at the same time, hey, I'm bugged a little, you know? Yeah. And, and And that's... If he's fudging that, and he knows he's fudging that because he knows Flint, and he knows mm-hmm. Flint history, you know, what else is he fudging? You know? Yeah. yeah I mean, it, it does. I think that's a problem that intensifies over his career. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it does become sort of conspicuous that there there are no dates given, you know? And like, if you're telling a, a story of like a transitional time in a city, like it is notable that you you are avoiding establishing any sort of chronology. And, and it does bother me to a certain extent too, Keith, especially those two examples, which I did not know until just now. I guess if you're like creating a portrait of a city, of, of a dying city, like if you're trying to actually capture the death of a city and the, the moments that like symbolize that death, it makes sense to bring those into the story. It's where I think you imply causality that the problem mm-hmm. becomes a little more problematic. <laughs> no, for sure. For sure. I mean, that it, because you watch that segment of the film which is i think one of the most effective mm-hmm. there the and, and you're just you're the, all the, the tourism yeah. efforts which is three-pronged but separated by many years several years you know where whereas you think it's a cause and effect where these plants plants have closed they're trying this 
this effort to revitalize the city. There's no support for it, and then it goes away, and that's not that's not true at all. And then it, it makes it seem then less insane that they would even try <laughs> um, if there if the plants were still in operation and and the city had a chance to be revived. Then it, it seems less crazy to have these things there. Um, but you know, one thing I was thinking about because Ebert was talking about. This I, I mentioned in the keynote about Ebert not getting hung up in these little quibbles and talking about it as being a sort of a Bronx cheer aimed at GM, which it certainly is. I was thinking more recently about the difference between, you know, about tactics and process and, and these things that are, are starting to really come to the fore in the political world now because because we're seeing a lot of norms are are being thrown out the window it really doesn't have to do have anything to do with consistency or a coherent argument what it has to do with is winning mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and i and i think that's that this is almost i think michael moore understood that that at this time and he under, certainly understands it now that it's that it really coming up with some rigorous you know intellectually coherent unimpeachable argument is really not necessarily going to get the job done the, you know the, what, what matters is is putting a w on the board and so for more that means he gives himself that ability to narrativize this in a, in a way that is deceptive but effective you know and we might object to it i certainly object to what mitch mcconnell is doing now and i there are plenty of things you, we could object to in roger and me but i think that's that school of thought it's like we are you know michael moore is in this film and in other films is interested in affecting political change and he's going to do it by any means necessary and not be too persnickety about about the rules about about doing the right thing i agree okay <laughs> well, I was say, well, well put scott. Put, put a w on the board for scott on uh, that okay <laughs> no but well i mean i guess that is a segue into sort of a related topic which is the idea of confrontation and especially when it comes to political discussion and like a comfort with confrontation is increasingly necessary you know to participate in the political discourse and those of us who are not particularly confrontational maybe don't uh, participate because of that element of it Uh, but going all the way back to this movie like more is very very well suited to that type of discourse yeah, I think you just kind of kind of get ginned up enough to do it. Yeah. I I remember talking to Dave Weigel, a reporter of the Washington Post, and he he likes to write about you know emerging political movements. He likes to kind of you know hang around the fringe and see what 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 bubbles to the surface. And his whole notion of politics is that anger is sort of the animating force of politics on mm-hmm. both both sides. And and I think that's kind of what it takes. And you know you see a Michael Moore film like Roger and Me your reaction to it is is so emotional it's not intellectual it's not you're not scratching your chin over how the numbers break down or you know or coming up with large bits of social theory you're specifically angry on behalf of of these people that he's you know aligned himself and yourself with and it's powerful you know yeah and you can go through the whole movie without real without realizing that you're only getting Michael Moore's version of the GM story, mm-hmm. you know, and not that necessarily they have a sympathetic narrative that's going to change my mind um, and make me sympathize with the corporate overlords uh, sticking it to the, the little guy. But no, we don't we don't hear GM's notion of why they had to do this, to, you know, without the Michael Moore filter. And Roger, I mean, I think much more effective than the GM perspective or, or lack thereof is kind of how he engages with the elite of Flint, Michigan, yeah. and in terms of juxtaposition 
juxtaposing that with those who are suffering and um, the Gatsby party. The I mean, Gatsby, it's just the, the, a total the, lack of self consciousness about having a Gatsby party in the living statues. Yeah, and and like <laughs> and, and this film does not really engage with the racial aspect of that uh, of that division. Um, his new film picks that up a little more in the Flint segments, which we can talk a little more about next week. But there is that one shot at the Gatsby party of just these rich white people in their Gatsby gear. And then the only black person is the black woman who's a living statue, you know, and it's just quite the Stark. tableau. Yeah, it but, really is. Yeah, he doesn't call out the racial politics, but they're there. I mean, yeah. you know, you, you you have to be blind not to see what's going on. Yeah. The Gatsby party is bad. To me, the prison party is, yeah. is, is the worst. The, the, is. The, we found the riot gear. <laughs> Oh, oh wow. those ladies oh uh, my god the right gear ladies oh yeah oh my gosh it just yeah the uh, absolute clueless system and, and there's a there's a point where you think you know this is just an ambush i mean he he really does think about the narrative when he is putting his film together it's not he's not a fly on the wall type of guy he's he's constructing he's manipulating you and so he's 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 gonna be like i'm gonna go into this Gatsby party or the polo grounds or a, you know, a prison party or something and just, you know, get the, get the most abhorrent stuff that you can see and then cut that against, you know, the, the side of, of, of Flint that they're just, that they're completely uh, oblivious to or insensitive to. That's his strategy. Mm-hmm. But, and it uh, does become a little repetitive or obvious as the movie goes on like that juxtaposition like every every segment that is either at gm or at one of those parties like then immediately cuts to an eviction and one of those eviction scenes always cuts immediately to another you know rich person party or you you know like it's almost i haven't mapped this film out but i think if you did it would almost go scene by scene you know moving back and forth between those two or three worlds yeah I mean, but it's effective in mm-hmm. that propaganda yes. in that propagandistic way of just really ginning ginning things up a little yeah. bit and making you really uh, feel that contrast and i think it contributes to that implication of causality that we talked about and you know maybe exacerbates that problem from time to time so what do you make of the 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 michael moore persona at this point in his career because i mean he's he's confident enough to be the michael moore to that we have come to know i mean the, to, to put himself in front of the camera to do the narration to put himself at the center mm-hmm. of the movie um how, how does he work in this one i think he's very entertaining and very affable and 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 funny and the first personness of it all is appropriate because it's it's his story as well. I mean, he grew up there. He knows this mm-hmm. place. And he's weaving his biographical details into it in a way that, that I feel like give him an authority to tell this story in a way that another person wouldn't. The film starts with autobiography. You know, like it starts not even super talking about Flint. It starts talking about him and his family and then mm-hmm. broadens out from there into into Flint. And I think in terms of establishing this movie as you know a semi-personal narrative as opposed to journalism or you know a a factual account of of, you know the chronology like opening it that way is really sort of important and Mm -hmm. that he does it so like you said affably and so comfortably like there there's no sort of sense of him being apologetic or meta about inserting himself into his own story it's just right out of the gate it's like this is my story and i'm going to tell it my way through 
my personal lens. Yeah, I mean, at the same time, though, he's not somebody who is given to a whole lot of self-examination. I mean, I think about some of first-person documentaries that I really love. Sherman's March by Ross McElwee or, or, or that movie Tarnation. Do you remember that movie? Do you remember Tarnation? Yeah, I like Tarnation. Um, but what happened it, to that director? He did another film that people seem to like oh, okay. fairly well. But um, uh, in any case, um, those films are so much more willing to reveal vulnerabilities and unvarnished qualities of, of the person making them than Michael Moore. I mean, never. It, I don't think you ever look at a Michael Moore film and feel like he's he's criticizing himself at any point yeah, at all. Um, so so he is... On the other hand, just the way he presents himself yeah. physically, it's hard to call it vanity. Yeah. It is kind of, except except he's a particular brand of Midwestern sure. hero. So so the fact that he you know looks as he does and dresses as he does, that feeds into his heroic persona. I mean, if he's a, a svelte, nicely dressed person who wears top hats rather than baseball caps, uh, I, think, I think you get it. I don't think he reads as the Midwestern hero anymore. Hmm. I, I just like the idea of, of a top hat wearing a Midwesterner. So that part of it, it's personal only to a point, only mm-hmm. to, to, the, to the extent that he allows it to be. But the, to the extent that he allows it to be, as you say, it's authentic in the sense that he's he's from Flint and he is he's casting himself as a hometown boy who is you know fighting for the less powerful and uh, doing it in a way that is hugely effective in this film. Although I guess it should be said that like the the mission he is on is simply to bring Roger Smith to Flint. That is his stated goal to to bring him to Flint and like show him what's going on you know and and like ostensibly hold his feet to the fire or whatever but i guess just in terms of you know heroic performance or anything at least it's presented as a very humble goal you know like like i just want you to come with me to my hometown and take a look around and have a conversation you know and and the fact that that is ostensibly such a reasonable humble request (laughs) you know and that he kind of frames it that way you know makes Roger Smith and GM look more villainous by comparison. No, it's a, it's a really clever trap. Yeah. It's like, well, what would be so hard about going to Flint yeah. and talking to me? We'll just have a conversation. Yeah. Oh, it's entirely a lose-lose situation for sure. Roger Smith. Yeah. I mean, I think Roger Smith's hope was probably that this this is just some no, nobody filmmaker who's who's not going to talk to me at all and, and uh, the, the film isn't going to get anywhere and I'll, I'll be fine. I mean, I think to, to actually put himself out there and try to engage in any way with Michael Moore would be a huge error yeah. uh, um, on his part. Um, though he, he certainly paid, uh, he, he paid the price. He retired one year later. Retired. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, uh, so it didn't make him look good. So where do you stand on Pets or Meat? Because that was the part of the film that was really popular. People got a lot of laughs out of it. Uh, There's a short film that was spun out of it with that title, Pets or Meat. Uh, but some critics sort of held it up as the biggest example of more making fun of the rubes i think it's a case where probably cosmopolitan types or 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 see condescension that's not really there i think mm-hmm. he, yeah i think he was just talking to this woman who was selling rabbits for pets or meat and i really can't think of a much 
better summation of the desperation that it had had set in at that point uh, than that. I really like that segment, and I like that woman. You know, like I mean, I'm an animal lover. I I don't really ever want to eat rabbit, much less you know kill my own. But like in terms of establishing the links you have to go to for self sufficiency in this environment, like she's a super super effective illustration. I think she's like just the way she presents herself. Like there's no shame to how she like talks about what she does, and I don't think that more implies that there should be you know i think that my perception of their conversation is that there's no patronizing happening on on moore's part and i like you said keith i think this is a classic like that sounds like a you problem you know in terms of that criticism yeah i I, i'm completely in agreement with with both of you on that and i think i think it's okay to laugh i think it's okay to find you know the nonchalance with which she treats yeah. this little illegal side business yeah. is um like we're laughing because she's a character she you, is. you know and not because of, like what she's doing is essentially humorous and i appreciate the i appreciate a couple more things i mean one the fact that it really is one of the few parts of the film that feels organic in a way that other documentaries do or that that a Wiseman film or something like that would feel like something that's much more verite than than Michael Moore generally is so you kind of appreciate this kind of like moment of out of time that feels again authentic and then I like that it goes far enough to show you what she actually does I mean that, that it shows you her just casually killing and and yeah. stripping the 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 rabbit of its, its its fur and it's it's no big deal it's what she does all the time yeah maybe it's because I've seen it so many times but it's like surprisingly not traumatic to watch that like it, it, it's surprising like when she first like bonks that bunny but just in terms of like watching her like strip it down it's also mechanical and methodical mm-hmm. and matter of fact like it's just and not particularly bloody it just it, it seems like something that should be like really upsetting and it is like you know like when you get down to what it means that she's doing this i have an update on the pets or meat lady by the <laughs> way as of 2009 at least it's an older article but she was still unemployed and selling uh rat terriers but only as pets That's good. Um, and her daughter was 16 and planning to leave flint Oh, so she's still in Flint. Yeah, still in still in the same house. Not not doing the rabbit thing anymore, though. Yeah, I I, I imagine the health department uh, that was already on her tail during filming would uh, not have let it slide further once the movie came out. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, we'll we'll get a chance to talk more about Roger and me in conjunction with Fahrenheit eleven nine next week. But for now, we'll take a break and be right back with some feedback. Now it's time for feedback, when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. We took our annual early fall hiatus, but that didn't stop virtual mail from piling up. And this week, we wanted to share a couple on our pairing of Jaws and The Meg. First up are some thoughts on color in Jaws. Genevieve, want to get us started? Sure. Meg, who insists she has no relation to THE Meg, writes... At home on Labor Day, the traditional end of summer, I was watching Jaws and thought about that rumor you all mentioned about the use of the color red in the film, since there was only one outfit that always stood out to me in the movie, and it had red in it. I can't say I remember to pay attention to color throughout the movie. I was pretty quickly distracted by everything else Jaws has to offer. But I did manage to make a few observations, particularly about costuming. There is some use of red at times in the movie, including the clothing of extras, but it's not very often. The color that's most represented is blue. Characters are sometimes dressed in multiple shades of blue. I also notice a lot of khaki and yellow. I can't help but notice that these colors together kind of reflect the sea, the sun, and the sand, with the sea being dominant. 
Like I said, extras do sometimes wear bright red, the lifeguards on 4th of July, for instance, and it really does stand out when it appears. But rarely are characters that are a real focus of the camera dressed in bright red. I couldn't find any scenes where the main characters wear bright red. Those few times the camera was really focused on a character in red seemed carefully chosen. There were three of them. First, Alex Kittner wears bright red swimming trunks. Second, the girl on the beach who spots the true shark in the pond on the 4th of July is wearing a red bandana and has red splotches on her jeans. She's shot from behind in one scene, so her bandana fills a large part of the right part of the screen. This is the outfit I always remember. She looks cool. And then the third, the hapless fellow in the pond who loses a leg is sitting in and falling out of a bright red boat. So yeah, I'd say the colors in this movie are very carefully chosen, with red being used very sparingly and significantly. Watching it with that in mind, extras in red almost stood out like drops of blood. It's not a major code cracking, but just another example of how carefully thought through everything about the movie is without being obvious about it. I'm really glad she she did that mapping for I know. us. I love that. I just it's so this kind of these kind of letters make me so happy just because, you know, we've inspired someone in some way to look this closely at a film and and, uh, and further the discussion, I guess. Yeah, and, and Scott, you didn't even get to participate in that discussion of your all-time favorite me. movie. What, it's what, one of my what were you off doing sure. instead of the, the important I was work the, of, of <laughs> talking was, about Jaws? I was swimming in the ocean. <laughs> uh, but uh, I am were alive. Were you wearing red? Uh, no, <laughs> I was not wearing red, and I did not bleed red either, at least not in the water. So so um, that was fortunate. But I was really, really upset about not being part of the Jaws. Yeah, whatever analytical discussion. skills I have as someone who watches films, it's not that kind of, you know, you know, graph paper in hand, uh, looking at way, looking at things. That I, but I love reading that kind of stuff. So yeah, that's uh, thanks. Thanks for the effort. I, I guess uh, I'll just tag on here that we got multiple letters, most of the short and terse variety, uh, chiding us for not really talking much about the score in Jaws. Uh, uh, it's not really a major element. Yeah, though. yeah, you know, um, kind of blends into the background. <laughs> Um, but but yes uh this is just to say we are sorry we did not uh talk more about the the score of jaws there's just a lot to talk about well next picture show listeners should know to listen to the notes that aren't there (laughs) john williams is a very good composer how about that we'll just say yeah i'm gonna throw out some really hot hot (laughs) takes hot takes um so i i haven't caught up with the meg yet yet I should say. <laughs> don't I, i'm probably not gonna watch the meg but you don't catch up with the meg the meg catches up with you Ooh. oh that's true it's a very large uh, shark yes. right um well the meg is still the summer movie people are talking about right based on the small sample size of this one email we got about it keith do you want to read it absolutely kyle in boston writes the meg was by far my favorite blockbuster of the summer I agree with Genevieve that the suspense sequences in the deep are effective and look great, but also acknowledge that, yes, the dialogue is very bad. <laughs> I don't think that it's seeming indecision about whether to be a serious shark movie or a silly shark movie is really a problem. To me, it shifts between its serious and silly tones pretty easily, except for that scene on the beach, as you all noticed. I think it fails both because it's such a direct reference to Jaws and because it attempts to keep the very real tension that works in the opening deep water sequences and engage in comedy at the same time thereby breaking the tension. In response to Tasha's complaint about Jason Statham's one-note masculinity, I was actually very pleasantly surprised by his portrayal. Yes, he begins the movie as a parody of hyper-masculinity with his none-of-this-is-my-problem attitude, but his interactions with a young girl are the most wholesome scenes I've seen with Statham outside of the sequence in Fate of the Furious where he saves the baby. And there his smiling at a child is played for laughs, 
whereas in the Meg, it was a genuine representation of a strong man who's good at relating to a young girl, which felt special to me. As you all noted, Statham is the only character sexualized, objectified in the movie. My girlfriend pointed out right as we left the theater that this is a major summer blockbuster with three beautiful women in the cast, Lee Bing Bang, Ruby Rose, and Jessica McNamee, but it doesn't objectify any of them at any point, and that is super refreshing. I also think that while it isn't at all a study of femininity, the way Jaws can be said to be a study of masculinity, we do get to see at least some different forms of femininity, and this is possible largely because the women aren't just there to be objectified. That's an interesting take. And yes, it, it is worth noting that none of the three women are objectified. I, I think it is worth noting that like the film needs like three different types of women to portray like to have to add up to any sort of portrayal of femininity like the the three female characters are honestly for this type of movie they're pretty well drawn but they're not especially like deeply drawn you know they're they're fairly uh, one one note with a little resonance <laughs> you know whereas like jason statham is just like sort of held up as like the er male you know mm-hmm. but I, I i do appreciate this letter and i appreciate kyle's appreciation <laughs> of what the meg does do well because it doesn't it's not the worst movie we've talked about on this movie it's not even the worst ocean centric Bay- movie Baywatch, we've, we've Baywatch, talked, Baywatch. yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> both of the answers to both are Baywatch, probably, yeah yeah, right? yeah. Which I, I, th- which I haven't I yet felt... caught up with that one <laughs> when... i was absent that in that episode i, I get to you know track that one down <laughs> Amazing. Maybe you and Scott can do a double feature together. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, just my point is that like there is worthwhile stuff happening in the Meg, um, which I think we we acknowledged in that episode. See, I'd like to hear Keith's thought, but thoughts, but he has to use the word femininity. <laughs> I can't say I can't say femini- femininity, guys. Yeah, oh, there, 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 did it. <laughs> we 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 just for just for some background, we went through about seventy takes of Keith <laughs> saying the word femininity. Femininity. I think yeah. it was the words around it that was tri- that were tripping me. I up. think you're scared of femininity. Maybe. Keith. Yeah, maybe. I think this is definitive proof that you are. <laughs> Uh, so that wraps up our feedback for this episode. We always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may feature your response on future episode or post it on Facebook for discussion. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. And part two will bring in Fahrenheit 11.9, Michael Moore's latest essay film about the state of the nation. Look for that next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow, and follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we'll be down at the Yacht Club, liberating one of Betsy DeVos's boats from the dock. (laughs) 